The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. We have these certain days appointed during penitential seasons, the seasons of Advent and Lent, in which we change the mood just a bit, in which we come up for air from our somber and and sobering musings, and we simply abide in the love of God for His people in Christ. It's important to do that in the midst of a penitential season, because if we're not careful, we can end up doing too much navel-gazing, right? Looking inward, constantly introspecting, constantly seeing what's under the hood. So this is what today is about. Our gospel lesson gives us much cause for rejoicing. That's what today is about. And as a matter of fact, it's not just fitting that we rejoice. The original Greek text is a little stronger in our gospel lesson, it actually says something more akin to, it is necessary, necessary that we rejoice. And what exactly are we called to rejoice in? With this one story, Jesus shows us our sinful tendencies. He shows us our sinful nature. He shows us the nature of repentance and faith. And He shows us the great gift of God's extravagant love and His forgiveness. And it's in this love through Christ our Lord in which we're called to rejoice. It's in His love that we rejoice. It's possible that you have read this piece of Scripture a thousand times. It's quite possible that you've, whole, you, you've heard maybe dozens of sermons on this passage. I'm probably not going to give you anything new today. I don't need to. Because the story stands on its own. It stands on its own. I could probably just read the text to you, say amen, and we could all go home. It is Jesus' sermon. It's perfect. It does what it's supposed to do. It hits all the right notes. We have this story in countless depictions from famous artists throughout history. We've got commentaries and commentaries and articles stacked to high heaven that are written by some of the best theologians and church fathers throughout the centuries. It's an endless supply of material that have been written on this one passage. It's Jesus' most famous parable. The, the parable of the prodigal son is what it's traditionally called. But that's not quite accurate. The story is actually about two sons. Two sons who are both equally prone to wander. They wander in their own unique ways. But at the end of the day, the hero of this story is neither one of those sons. At the end of the day, there stands at the center this father whose love cannot be destroyed. He is the point of this story. Let's not get it confused. No matter how many times his love and his mercy is drugged through the mud, literally, it's not destroyed. Jesus tells this story as he's reclining at a table. Verses 1 through 3 tell us that. He's reclining at the table with tax collectors and with sinners, with a really rough lot, some shady characters. And the Pharisees were there and they grumbled that Jesus would eat with such people. Why would you be eating with these folks, Jesus? In that culture, what that meant is if you had table fellowship with someone, it meant that you saw them as an equal. So Jesus shares these parables. The first two parables are about lost things. We have a lost sheep and a lost coin. 
We're actually going to look at those parables later on in the summer. But now in this third parable, he gets personal. Jesus gets personal. He is talking not just about stuff or items. He's not talking about sheep and he's not talking about coins. He is talking about sons. Something that we can all relate to. Something that even the Pharisees could relate to. The younger son told his father, Father, I want my inheritance now. I want what is coming to me now. What he meant by this was something like this. Not that he just wants his dad's stuff. What he meant by this is, Dad, I want you dead. You might as well be dead to me. I'm cutting you off. I don't want you. I want your stuff. Most of us, of course, would smack that boy upside his head. But the father actually obliges the request. He actually delivers. He gives the younger son his inheritance so that he can move off into this far-off country. And now the son is loaded with cash, but it doesn't take very long. The son wastes all of his money on loose and reckless living. It's a story that's all too familiar to us. We know either that was us or we know somebody like that, right? He squandered his money. Now a famine hits. He's got no backup. He's got no friends. He's fallen on hard times. And things just keep getting worse and worse outside of his father's house. He makes a decent decision. He goes to get a job. But it's not just any job. It's a job working for a Gentile pig farmer. This was, gonna be, this was to be a, a shameful thing in the Jewish culture. Not only are you working for a Gentile, you are working for a Gentile pig farmer, someone who works with unclean animals. You've got to stay away from those things. So at the lowest of low, he gets so hungry that he wants to eat the pig food. Those pods were good for fattening pigs, but they were terrible for human consumption. You wouldn't get much nutrition out of them. What those pods represent in this story is the enticements of the world. Those things that we think will satisfy our hunger, but only leave us empty. One commentator said this. He said, sin makes men a companion of swine in, in more ways than one. Sin makes men a companion of swine. Most, if not all of us, can relate to this man's situation. He had it good in his father's house. But he blew it. He blew it. He's got no one to blame but himself. But we're all prone to wander in the same way. Maybe you grew up in the Christian church. You didn't know how good you had it until you left. You've been at some low points in your life because you walked away from your Heavenly Father. You chased after things of this world that only left you hungry. Maybe you, maybe you didn't grow up in church, but you've still been where the prodigal son has been. You just didn't know that there was a heavenly father waiting for you at home. You didn't know that you are his son whom he calls to. You're his daughter who he seeks after. And at some point, while you were wallowing in the mud, you were brought to the same realization that the younger son had. The text says that he came to himself he realized he didn't need to be eating pig food after all. He could be a hired servant in his father's house. At least they had plenty to eat. He came to realize this scripture. Proverbs 28 says that, He that covers his sins shall not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes his sins shall have mercy. He realized this. 
in the midst of the mud. So on the journey back home from that far off country, he rehearsed. He worked out this confession. He had to get it right. It's got to be this confession that he's going to make to his father. He would only get halfway through that confession. Not even halfway. His father sees him from a long way off, runs to him, hugs him, kisses him. He'd been searching for him. He'd been waiting for him eagerly every day. Waiting for him to come home at any time. He had the... He had that calf ready to be slaughtered at any moment. He had the party, uh, the party decorations all ready for when that son of his would come home. And the son begins to confess. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be your son. But the father interrupts this confession. He would not receive this boy as anything but a son. He was not going to be a servant in his father's house. That would not do. He said, bring the best robe. Bring the family signet ring. Bring sandals for his feet. Have the fattened calf killed and let's party. That's the father's reaction to the son's return. You see, the son is brought back to his senses. He's compelled to make this confession because of the tenderness of the father. He thinks to himself, well, at least my father will accept me as a servant, so I'll go and make this confession. But the father's love goes even deeper than that as he proves with his lavish gifts. This love of the father was shown in his refusal, his absolute refusal to accept his son as anything but a son, despite his sins, despite his sins against him. This is, this is a thumbnail of the love that God has for you in Christ. Just a glimmer. Where you have identified with the younger son in your life, where you have squandered your inheritance with wasteful and reckless living, where you have committed sins, but you've been brought low and you've been brought to your senses, where you have returned to your father, you have that same status as the younger son. He is not going to deal with you as anything but a son and a daughter. So what if you don't identify with the younger son? What if you've never been tempted to chase reckless living? What if you've diligently served the Lord most of your life? What if you were born onto an altar grew up in the church, you've never left. Well, there's a son for you as well. There's a son for you to identify with. He's the older brother. He's the one that we don't hear much about. The older brother is working diligently in his father's field. And he hears this music. He hears this partying in the distance. What is this? So he leaves his work and he goes to his father's house to find out what this ruckus is all about. And when he asks, he's told that his good-for-nothing brother, that this party is for his good-for-nothing brother. His brother's back home safe and sound. And when the older brother refuses to go into the party, his father comes out. 
He lashes out at his father. He says, look, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. So rather than rejoicing in his younger brother being alive, he only wants to complain and stew in his own grease. Yes, there's some of you... There's some of you I know that identify with this older brother more than the younger. And believe me, I understand. Why should the prodigals get the parties? Why should they get the parties? You've committed to doing things right. You've committed to holy and righteous living. You've committed to walking in your baptism. Why should the sinners and the tax collectors get the same heavenly kingdom as you do? You've been working diligently in your father's field. Notice the father's tender words toward his son. Notice what he says. He says, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting, not just fitting, it was necessary to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You have this same exact promise as the younger brother. You are always with him. All that he has is yours in Christ Jesus. And because of your status as a son, which you did nothing to deserve, by the way, it was given to you as a gift, your proper response to a sinner who repents ought to be rejoicing. That is our response to someone who repents, someone who comes back to their heavenly father. It's rejoicing because that is what is happening in heaven when one sinner repents. There's a party. Jesus leaves this parable open-ended. He doesn't tie it up with a nice bow and a nice neat ending. And they lived happily ever after, does he? No. He wants our minds to continue to wonder what happens with this loving father and with his two sons. I like to imagine the Pharisees and the tax collectors sitting there. They're listening to Jesus. Their mouths are just on the floor. Their jaws are on the floor. What a masterful story this is. And it applies to them in their context, but this applies to us as well. Do you think that the older brother ever came into the party? Do you, ever, do you think that he ever listened to the request of his father? Son, come. Come in and celebrate. Celebrate the repentance of your younger brother that he is not dead, but he is alive. Or do you think that he just stayed outside? Do you think that the younger brother stayed put in his father's house in the years to come? Who knows? We don't know. And that might make us squirm a little bit. You know what? We can't stake anything meaningful upon the, 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 the tendencies and the proclivities of two sinful men. We can't bank anything on what they might do. The only thing that is sure and certain in this story is the father and his love for his two boys. 
It's this love that will not be destroyed. We don't know how good we have it. We forget that through holy baptism, we've been given that royal status, even though we've done nothing to earn it or deserve it. But God calls you his son. He calls you his daughter for the sake of Christ's death and resurrection. Even now, church, we are, we are prone to wander because we still live with this thing called a sinful nature. We still have this old Adam that wages war against God, that refuses and rejects his love for us. And the things of this world call to us, they beckon us to come to them, to abandon the Father's house. But it's that extravagant love, that mercy, that grace of God that keeps us and that even welcomes us back when we've gone that way a thousand times, a million times. His eye searches for you. His word goes out to you, convicting you of your sins, compelling you with his love to return to him. He wants so much better for you than to be wallowing around in the mud. That's no life for a son of his. He wants you to know his love. He wants you to be assured of your status in his house that you belong to Him, that your sins are forgiven through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, His royal Son. And it's God's abundant love that entreats us to come in. Come into the party when our younger brother comes back. When we're tempted to scoff, when we're tempted to thumb our nose at the younger brother for all of his mess-ups, for all of his trespasses, the father simply says, it's fitting to rejoice. It's necessary to rejoice. The love here that the father shows his son is the same love that you receive from your father every time you come to this place, every time you attend divine service, when you hear the word of absolution, when your sins are forgiven through the Lord's preaching and through his supper, it's that same it's that same forgiveness, that same extravagant love that the Father has for His Son in this parable. You are given the robe of righteousness. You're given that ring on your finger. You belong to the family. You have the family signet. You've got the sandals on your feet. You will not be treated as anything less than a son, a daughter. He loves you that much. This is how God deals with repentant sinners. This is how he deals with the younger brothers that are here. And it's how he urges the older brothers to rejoice. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.